0: Good morning, First Baptist Church of Greg Gables Hope you're all having a marvelous week. We miss all of you that are still uh, quarantining, staying home, social distancing. Uh, know that we're here for you. If you have any prayer requests, we'd be happy to, to pray for you, to call you, to talk to you. Any way, shape, or form, you can always reach out to your pastors. Um, last week, we did have a business meeting where we uh, voted and affirmed our four new deacons. And so, we're working on deacon families this week, so expect to call Uh, from them, or a letter coming soon within the next couple weeks to find out who your new deacon is. I hope you have your Bibles out. I hope you've been able to tune in to our This Week at Gray Gables where you've seen the songs that we've sung. You've read the scripture reading for this week and you have uh, downloaded the notes and the outline and you are ready with your Bibles open to dive into God's Word. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting a new chapter, and we're going to be looking at the first uh, two verses this morning. So with your Bibles open, uh, let's read God's word here together. Paul says, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. <clears throat> For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Gracious Father, Lord, this week I so resonated with the the words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to the Corinthians. Who is sufficient for this task? Uh, Lord, certainly I am not, but I'm thankful for the work of your Spirit. I thank you Lord, that by your grace that you have equipped and allowed me to already labor over this text, and Father, I trust that you are present here with us by your Spirit this morning, here and now, um, so that those who belong to Christ would be edified, would be built up, that you would convict us of sin when it is necessary in all things, Lord, that you would exalt your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that he would be honored and glorified. Uh, Lord, would you be honored and glorified through this word preached today, Father. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Leonard Ravenhill once wrote this. He said, if we displease God, does it matter whom we please? If we please him, does it matter who we displease? And that kind of goes into the big idea of our text this morning. The big idea of this text, the first two verses of 1 Thessalonians 4, is this. The Thessalonians were to grow in conduct that pleased God. The Thessalonians were to grow in conduct that pleased God. And likewise, you and I, the church, the New Testament church, we are to grow in conduct that pleases God. What we find in verses 1 to 2 is is actually a convention of letter writing that was used in the first century that was quite common. It was a, 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 a way of giving an appeal. It's actually called an appeal formula, and it has four primary elements. And you'll notice this as you read. Through many appeals throughout the New Testament, they always have four elements. The four elements are usually the verb, and and usually the verb used is perikaleo, which means to urge or exhort at times. The reference, then, secondly, the second element is a reference to the recipients. Um, A prepositional phrase is the third element that represents the source of authority. That is the authority by which the appeal is made. And then finally, the content of the authority itself. And if you didn't know, this is kind of going to be the outline as we examine the text. We're going to look at the verb. We're going to look at the reference to the recipients. We're going to look at the prepositional phrase referring to the source of the authority. And then we're going to look at the content of Paul's appeal to this Thessalonian church, that their conduct be pleasing to God. So let's look at each of these in turn. First, uh, the verb. The verb that Paul uses is actually two verbs that we see in verse 1. Uh, the two verbs are exhort and urge. <clears throat> he does use the common verb that's used in the appeal formula, the verb pericoleo, and he also uses the verb translated, we exhort. And I want to focus on that, we exhort, because phrasing it like this, like we exhort, uh, Paul writes uh, this and ensures that the appeal is communicated with warmth and friendliness, not just with a heavy-handed tone. Uh, if you've been present for our exposition of 1 Thessalonians, you'll recall that Paul has been very tender toward this young, fledging church from the very outset. He has referred to his ministry among them like a nursing mother or a caring father. So, like a parent who asks their child to take out the trash, for, trash, for instance, he asks them to do it and simply, instead of simply commanding them to do so. He is asking them to... Instead of simply commanding them. But the second verb, the uh, does not allow this gentle question to cause them to think that Paul's just indifferent about their response. The second verb is, is the idea of we urge, we compel, we spur on. It adds on this emphasis to the appeal that the other verb lacks. Paul is not simply asking them to do something he 's not simply saying, "Hey, buddy, would you take out the trash?" If you 've been a kid and your father or mother has asked you uh, to take out the trash trash, you should know immediately they're not just asking you. they're asking you with the expectation that you know you're also being commanded to do so. And that's exactly the way uh, Paul was urging and exhorting these Thessalonians to obey his command. Um, So their obvious response is, yes, we will do what you say. So the second element of the appeal formula is a reference to the recipients. Here, uh, the recipients obviously are the believers in Thessalonica. Uh, But Paul uses the word in our text, he uses the word brethren. And this word has so many incredible implications with it. It also can be translated brothers and sisters. And it's easy to miss the significance of Paul using this particular term in our text, right? But remember who Paul's writing to. He's writing to men and women, slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, people who are uh, divided ethically, economically, socially. And, And previous to Christ, they were divided religiously. These people swam in different pools. They played on different playgrounds. They had very little in common. But this term reminds them that they are family in Christ. All that used to divide them has now been set aside. Now, what matters most is not their economic status or their social status, but their status of being united to King Jesus. What matters now, first and foremost, is that they have the same father. And so I would actually point out, this is, this is Paul's seventh time using this address in this short letter. He is reminding them consistently that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. They are members of the household of God and their relationship should reflect this new reality. So we've seen the verb that Paul uses, the two verbs actually to urge and exhort. We've seen a reference to the recipients, which is this young church, the brethren at Thessalonica. Now let's look at the third element in this appeal formula. And that is the prepositional phrase that indicates the source of authority. A prepositional phrase that indicates a source of authority. And here in verse 1, that prepositional phrase is, "...in the Lord Jesus." Again, while we saw that Paul did express his appeal with with some kindness and love and tenderness, Paul is speaking authoritatively. Let's not forget that. Paul is the messenger of the Messiah. He speaks on his behalf, and so when Paul speaks, it's as if Jesus is speaking. Therefore, obedience to what Paul asked and urged him to do was not optional just because Paul communicated it with sincere love and respect. No, Paul could have just as easily written here, and so, brethren, we command you in the Lord Jesus Christ. His appeal is an authoritative order with all the necessity to obey as if the Lord Himself had written the letter. And, and so, this point's so important for us. In fact, it's so important that Paul repeats his point in verse 2, where he says, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> by instructing the Thessalonians how they were to walk in obedience to the Lord, Paul was doing exactly what Jesus commanded the apostles before his ascension. We know this in the Great Commission. <clears throat> we see it in Matthew chapter 28. We should know that text very well, shouldn't we? And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. In fact, Paul goes on to explain it even further in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. He says, So we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. See, this was the charge given to the apostles, including the apostle Paul, to go into the nations proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and calling all the peoples to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's the prepositional phrase that gives the source of the authority. Now let's look at the content of the appeal. What is the appeal then? It's the fourth element of our appeal formula. We may think in reading the text that the appeal is to walk and please God, but it's, it, it, it's not just that. He is exhorting them. The appeal is to do so more and more. That's the actual exhortation, to abound more and more. He says, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound. Abound more and more, which actually then begs the question, okay, abound in what more and more? And that's answered in the clause that's given. Just as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God. Abound in that more and more. Abound in walking the walk and pleasing God. Now, remember, during Paul's brief ministry, before being forced to leave Thessalonica, Paul had instructed them to walk in a manner worthy of God. If you flip over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we read this there. He says, As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. From the very beginning, in obedience to the command of Christ, Paul labored to bring about this obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Thessalonians. Uh, Do we see that? Uh, He taught them to obey the gospel. Trusting in Jesus always, church, means following him. And so the Thessalonians must walk in a manner worthy of God and so please him. And just so we're clear, we, we know that walk is a metaphor that refers generally to their conduct, right? We use the same metaphor. We say things like if you're going to talk the talk, then you must walk the walk. What we're saying, that, what are we saying when we say that, right? What are we saying? We're saying if you're going to talk like you can do X, Y, and Z, you better to be able, actually able to perform X, Y, and Z. You better be able to conduct yourself in that way. Well, that's the same way it's used here. To walk in a manner worthy of God is to conduct ourselves in a certain way. It refers to certain actions that is behavior that is pleasing to God. So these two infinitives, to walk and to please, they they form a word pair to serve and communicate one idea. Paul's not saying that the Thessalonian believers must walk a certain way and then they must also please God. No, he's saying they must walk in a certain way and so please God. So Paul encouraged, exhorted the Thessalonians, increase in conduct that pleases God. That's what the passage communicates. Just as they turned to God from idols to serve the the true and living God, they were to do so, abound in that more and more. But this idea of walking in a manner worthy of God and so pleasing God was a central part of the gospel message that Paul proclaimed everywhere. This wasn't foreign to him. He did this everywhere. In fact, uh, Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So the obvious implication there is that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, you must and can therefore please God. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote referring to whether or not we're still in this mortal body or are we with Christ before he returns. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Likewise, he wrote to Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the person of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Philippians 1.27 only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, or to Colossians that we had in our scripture reading today, Colossians one, nine and ten, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing. In the knowledge of God. Do you see that one of Paul's primary concerns is that God's people would walk in a way that pleases him? This wasn't optional according to the Apostle Paul what did it mean for this church then to conduct themselves in a way that is pleasing God? I want some specifics. Well, in this context, you can read all of those chapters that I just listed, and it'll tell you the individual context. The New Testament is filled with commands in the ways in which our conduct is pleasing to God. But in First Thessalonians, in this, conduct, uh, in, in this particular context, excuse me, Paul was going to address sexual ethics and then growing in love for one another. We're going to get there over the next two weeks. But, but again, this walking in a worthy manner, by which you recall, it's fleshed out throughout all of the New Testament. So for our purposes today, it would have to suffice to say that there is a way that Christians conduct themselves that is pleasing to God, and by implication, there is a way that you and I today conduct ourselves that is not pleasing to God. And so that's the passage, that's the text, but in order to rightly apply this text, I think we need to consider three crucial considerations, three crucial and critical issues that we need to understand to apply this text. The first is this, and I think it's probably the most important, so we're going to spend a bit of time here. The first is we, we struggle with this idea of pleasing God with our walk. We can admit that, right? We struggle with how this is so. We struggle with the idea that our walks in any way, shape, or form can be pleasing to God. You see, we here at First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, we know that God is pleased with us because we've been clothed with Christ, right? That the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to us and our sin has been imputed to him. Our salvation was accomplished in full by Jesus Christ and now we are justified. That is that God regards us as though we have never sinned and he grants us the gift of Christ' righteousness. Amen, amen. We, we love it, right? We sing it. It is finished. We emphasize the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ here at First Baptist Church of gray gables and rightly so but then okay what are we to do then with the idea that how we live either pleases or displeases god do we just qualify it to death so it means nothing do we subjugate the it to the gospel of grace so we begin to say and hear things like it's not about trying but trust or just let go and let god i, I want to address this because i have a feeling That what's going to happen is I'm going to cause you to probably have more questions than I'm able to answer. And so let me remind you, let's take a pause for the sermon and remind you that we love talking about the Bible here at First Baptist Church of Great Gables. And anytime you have a question, you can always talk to me after the service, text, call, whatever you can do to get a hold of me, right? Because what I want to do is I want to now use an analogy from the Old Testament that I think is going to help us really grasp this idea, or at least I hope it will. Again, the question before us is, is in what sense does your conduct, in what sense do your actions, the way we live, please or displease God? How does that fit into the biblical truth that you and I have been clothed with the righteousness of Christ and that God is pleased with us because of his finished work? Well, here's the question I'm going to add that's going to allow for this Old Testament analogy to take place. I want you to think about this. Were the sacrifices that God commanded the Israelites to perform, were those sacrifices pleasing to him? Were the sacrifices of Old Testament Israel, were they pleasing to God? Well, the obvious answer is yes, right? If you were to read through the book of Leviticus, you read that the sacrifices were a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. Yes, they were pleasing him, but, but this is critical. Hear me, church. They were not pleasing, the sacrifices were not pleasing in and of themselves, as though God really liked the smell of cooked meat. No, Uh, we can have that idea. But, But scripture is clear. For instance, when David wrote in Psalm 51, 16 through 19, he said, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart these O god you will not despise do good in your pleasure to zion build the walls of jerusalem then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering then they shall offer bulls on your altar so according to david does god delight in sacrifices or not Yes, God was pleased with the sacrifices of those who did so in faith. Those who recognized their need and brought God's sacrifices with internal humility, a dependence on God, a trust in Him, those who came sincerely, repentant, and fully trusting in the promise of atonement, they pleased God with their sacrifices. But God was not pleased with the sacrifice itself. Here's what we have to grasp. The sacrifice didn't work all by itself. If I came angry, if I came hating my neighbor, if I come disbelieving in God and I offer him the sacrifice that I heard my neighbor say I am supposed to offer him, that was not a pleasing sacrifice unto the Lord. Just because the sacrifice was given doesn't mean it was pleasing to God every time it was performed. In fact, the prophets hammer this home throughout the the, the genre of the prophets, don't they? That God did not delight in the sacrifices of Israel alone. The very sacrifices that were meant to be a pleasing aroma unto the Lord were actually a stench in his nostrils. Malachi recorded these words in the last book of the Old Testament. This is the Lord speaking. He says in Malachi 1.10, who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle my, uh, fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. So, so here's the question, and here's kind of the point of the analogy. Was God telling Israel to stop sacrificing? Was that his point in those rebukes? It wasn't the external it was the internal that was the problem. That's what we need to know. It wasn't the sacrifices themselves. It was the people who brought them. Certainly in the case of Malachi, it was the sacrifices, right? Because they had brought the Lord lame animals, blind animals. They brought to him the leftover from the herd they wanted to get rid of. But even that was just an outward expression of what's going on inside a person that does not love or value God. Listen, listen. Was the right response then to the rebuke of the prophets for Israel to say, Okay, Lord, you are right. We will shut the door and be done with those sacrifices. That was a real burden anyways for us. No. He was telling Israel to offer the sacrifices in the right way. The sacrifices were merely the external means by which their internal faith and repentance was to be expressed. Did their sacrifices please God? No. Their obedient faith expressed through the sacrifices would, though. Do you see, church? You and I, our walks in the New Testament church, our our walks work in the same way. It's not simply sexual purity that pleases God in and of itself. Listen, there are people who do not know Christ who are more sexually pure than some that do. It's not the works that, that God condemns. It's the attempt to merit something in the sight of God. It's the attempt to achieve a righteousness in our own sight before the Lord. It's what's been done with the works. So when we see that works are condemned as a means of being reconciled to God, do we therefore come to the conclusion that we no longer need to work that what we need to do now, since our, our, our works do not merit us anything, that what we need to do now is to completely stop working. We should all just stop striving to be obedient to the Lord. It's not trying, it's trusting. No. I try harder because I trust. I have a new motivation, a new spring, a new heart. Is it enough just to say that God is already pleased with me because of Christ, so what I do no longer matters? See, there's a ditch on both sides of this. You have legalism on one side and antinomianism on the other side. Trusting and following Jesus, obeying his commands, provides for us the narrow path that leads to salvation. That's the middle road. I trust and I follow Jesus. I can't do one without the other. I can't trust in Jesus by saying I trust in Jesus without following him in any way, shape, or form. And I can't follow Jesus and and not think that I need to trust in his finished work on the cross for my salvation. I can't uh, in any way, shape, or form please him on my own. See, the right response to this idea is not to abandon works, but it's not to depend on them, right? We're not to abandon works. We simply don't depend on our works to give us some sort of status before the Lord. My striving for sexual purity will never please God in and of itself, but until Christ returns, it'll always be imperfect, always. But in Christ... My striving is a pleasing offering to the Lord. I strive, I work, and I labor to please the Lord because I believe that Christ has made me pleasing, not so that I and myself can be pleasing. I think Paul summarizes this idea really well in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, where he says this, and whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now listen, as we made clear last week, right, we are not saved by works, we, but we're certainly saved for them. And so that's the analogy of the Old Testament sacrifices, pleasing to God through faith in, not in and of themselves, but that's how the sacrifices worked and that's how our obedience now works. That leads me to the next thing we need to rightly understand in order to reply to this. I'll be briefer with these two. The second thing is this, and I want you to hear this, Paul is not exhorting the Thessalonians to do something they can't do. You hear me? Uh, Paul's not encouraging and urging the Thessalonians to do something that they can't do. We have to tune into this because this seems obvious, uh, but I think we often miss this point. See, we often overextend the doctrine of total depravity, and we cling to texts like Romans chapter 7 like it's the definitive text of the Christian experience. And in Romans 7, Paul's wrestling. He said, he's saying, I love what I do not do, what I want to do, and uh, the things I'm doing, what I don't want to do. I find myself doing. What a wretched man am I? So then we somehow say, well, that's good enough. I, I want to do good stuff, um, but I, I just, I'm just wretched. And so because of that, we're able to wash our hands of all of our unpleasing conduct into the Lord. Listen, uh, nothing I'm about to say is meant to deny that there is a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Okay, there is Galatians 5. It's, it's clear, but please hear me now. If you belong to Christ you should be fighting like you believe you will win. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be striving, fighting to put sin to death like you believe that you actually have victory in Christ. See, when Paul asked and urged the Thessalonians to abound more and more, he actually expected them to abound more and more. He actually expected them to grow in holiness the New Testament is chock full of imperatives that are meant to be obeyed by God's people, that are meant to define our walk and our behavior. The apostles seem to assume that God's people would actually walk in a manner worthy of God more and more. Don't miss this. <clears throat> See, there's a good reason why they believed that. The apostles were actually thoroughly convinced that the promises of the new covenant were actually fulfilled in Christ. Do you understand what that means? They actually believed that hearts of stone were replaced by hearts of flesh, that God had actually poured out his spirit, not on just a few leaders within the community of God's people, but he poured out a spirit on all of God's people. The apostles knew that the new covenant was for a new community full of new members who had been called to be saints, called to be holy, not just commanded to live for God, but actually empowered to live for God by God's spirit. I mean, read your New Testament. Uh, Paul exhorts the Thessalonian believers, just as he does every other New Testament community, to become what they are through faith in Christ. What are they? They are new creations brought into a new humanity with a new covenant under a new covenant head for the glory of God. That's who they are. See, this is the talk we talk when we proclaim the gospel. So we have got to walk the walk. That's what we proclaim. This is what we proclaim has taken place. That's happened in and through the life, burial, and death and of resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father. Here's the problem. We're often like this group of monkeys that I once heard. A real study was done with a group of monkeys. There was a rope, a thing of bananas was hanging at the top of this rope, and, and this study was done to, uh, to, to test the, the mentality of these monkeys as it related to other people and so uh, there is a rope and the first couple of monkeys of course where every time they tried to climb up this rope they were zapped or they were buzzed they were shocked not too bad but they were uh, they understood that they could not get to these bananas without being hurt and so after a while they stopped trying So What happened in this study is they introduced a new set of monkeys in with the older monkeys. and What happened was any one of the new monkeys that tried to climb the rope in order to reach the bananas, the older monkeys learned you couldn't get the bananas, and so they began to pull those new monkeys down. Now listen, I know much like every other illustration I've ever given you, that analogy fails on so many levels, but hear me please. In general, Our church culture in the United States, what we have is we have a bunch of people who constantly are pulling others down because they have a wrong conception of our growth in Christ, our progressive sanctification, and they're convinced that we are not actually empowered to grow in holiness. They're convinced that we actually can't grow or strive for holiness, and so they, like those older monkeys, are pulling all the new converts down. Now, they would never state it like that, but their teaching implies it. So we have to understand, Paul, Paul's not exhorting us to do something that we cannot do. If you have the Spirit of God, then you ought to be fighting sin like you believe you will win. And so here we come now to the third thing we need to understand in order to rightly apply this text we are to abound more and more and it it really struck me as i was meditating on this passage that when we consider all the imperatives of the new testament all the commands we don't really find brand new ones we don't find brand new commands once you take in walk in a manner worthy of your calling 101 you have the basic building blocks you need in order to honor the lord jesus and your conduct in every situation see here's my conviction my conviction is is that most of our sinful behavior is not born out of ignorance. Most of our sinful behavior is born out of apathy. Uh, most of our sinful behavior is, is not born out of, out of ignorance or not knowing what to do in order to please God. Most of our sinful behavior is because we don't care. We're not desiring, striving, laboring, fighting. Or working to please God in any way. So let me ask you this question. When are Christians commanded to stop being exhorted to abound more and more. To walk in a way that pleases God. When is this command over for us? Well you should know the answer to that right? When Christ returns. It stops when you go home to be with him. That's it. Until that day, and listen, I know I'm telling you what you already know, but I'm going to continue to do more and more so until the Lord takes me home, because I don't want you to grow weary in doing good. I don't want you to, to not care. I don't want you to be apathetic. I don't want you to be lazy in your Christian walks. Listen, remember, as we talked about last week, if you have been justified, right, if you've been declared righteous in the sight of God, then you will be sanctified, which means God is going to grow you to be more like his son, and you will be glorified, which means the promise is he will complete the work which he began in you. It is promised. And that, that's, that's a wonderful hope, and I hope you were encouraged by that last week. Yet, Progressive sanctification, our experience of growing to be more and more like Jesus, it's a lot more like a roller coaster in our eyes and experience, isn't it? There's a lot of winding. There's a lot of what I feel is one step forward, two steps back. But here's the point, saints we have to strive, we've got to labor. We have to encourage one another and we've got to believe that God grants us grace through his son to accomplish that which he has asked of us. That his Holy Spirit actually lives in us and is actually empowering us to do that which pleases him and even our striving, as imperfect as it is, is still pleasing to God. And so what do we do? What's the charge? We press on. We walk, we strive, we labor, and we fight to put sin to death, and we do so more and more because of this simple truth that's found in 1 Thessalonians 5.24. Because he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. So, So my question is, Have you become apathetic in your walk? Have you you stopped caring about fighting sin, putting sin to death? Friends, you you are called to always be growing in holiness, growing to be more like Christ, to abound more and more in your walk so that you're pleasing God. My prayer is that you would take that to heart, the Lord would already be convicting you right now, and I, I believe that he is, that the Spirit of God has probably impressed something upon your heart and your mind, an area in your life where you know you've stopped striving, working, and fighting. Well, friend, in, in that case, you just, you pray, you ask for God's grace, you will be reminded that his Spirit actually empowers you to fight that sin and put it to death, and you trust in the finished work of Christ that he's faithful to do it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we we confess that we do often grow weary, that in our experience we often struggle more than strive. And Father, I pray that we would hear this exhortation this morning and that we would believe that trusting for us would not mean that, that we don't try, but it would actually mean that we try more. Trusting that Christ has indeed accomplished completely our salvation. So our striving is, in, is winning now. Lord, if it was in our own efforts that our striving would be losing as we've seen. But our striving is not in our own efforts. It's, it's not, Father, in our own strength. But it's in the power of the resurrection at work in each one of us that has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you bring that to completion, that which you have done in us? Would you compel us to strive all the more, trusting that our prayer is heard and answered, not for our sake, Father, but for the sake of your Son, who is exalted above every other name, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Church family, the invitation is very clear. If you're a Christian, we, we are all on this, this path we call progressive sanctification our experience of growing to be more like Jesus. And we know um, there are so many ups and downs. And so my encouragement to you is that the Lord would convict your heart in in some way today to, to examine where you're fighting, where you're striving, and where you're fighting like you believe you will win. Because if you belong to Christ, then His Spirit has empowered you to actually walk and please God with your conduct and behavior and abound in doing so more and more. And so whatever area Uh, that you need to confess and you need to get off your chest that you've stopped fighting and stopped striving in this particular area. Would you confess that to a brother and sister in Christ and we would love to encourage you and strengthen you. We are not meant to walk on this path alone, we get to walk together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm thankful for that. So confess that, reach out, and have us pray for you. And the Lord would work in that particular way in your life. But if you're hearing this, and you're not a believer, and you know that there's really, as we saw last week, there's really no evidence that you have any desire to do anything uh, that pleases the Lord. That pleasing the Lord's not even on your radar. You are completely obsessed with only pleasing one, and that is yourself. If that's the case, then friends, would you hear this gospel message and know? that there is a holy, just, powerful, sovereign God who created all things, who created you, who who values your life, and in creating you, your charge was to bring honor and glory unto him, but you and your sin have failed and rejected, have turned against, rebelled against him in your sin, that you've decided to please yourself instead of pleasing God, and so uh, if, if that's the case, Jesus has sent, or God has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. He perfectly obeyed the law so that you might have life in him if you would repent and trust him of your sins. If that's you, uh, then please call out to us, let us know. We would love to walk you through what repentance and faith looks like in the life of a believer. And we'd love to encourage you in this way. Church family, we love you. Thank you for joining us in worship here this morning. We pray that you all have a wonderful week. We're here for you in any way we can be. uh, And we praise God for this wonderful, wonderful church. Go and be blessed.